Welcome back to another episode of Don't Ghost Your Brain. I'm your host, Camille Casper, and today we have a fascinating topic to explore, why people consistently party and ingest alcohol. But before we dive in, I want to emphasize that this episode is not intended to shame or talk down on anyone who chooses to drink, party, or indulge in anything. We all fight our own battles and everyone finds ways to cope with them. In no way do I mean to shame because I strictly want to make this episode scientifically based without any bias. My goal is to allow anyone to truly understand the topic and explore the underlying reasons behind these behaviors. And today I want to talk about a question that a friend of mine brought up the other day. And that is, why do people willingly party? At first it was just a simple answer for me, but the more I thought about it, the more it intrigued me. Today we are going to explore the science behind how our brains respond to alcohol and drugs the motivations behind consistent partying and strategies to navigate social situations without relying on anything. So let's get started. I think as sad as it is, many people have watched someone in their life struggle with some sort of addiction and i know i did myself and it's hard because you don't know how to help them if you haven't gone through it yourself unless of course you're trained in that but then that's a completely different story quick shout out to my friend kenny clay because about a month or two ago my friend brought up this question and it was completely out of the blue but he seemed genuinely confused as to why people party and consume substances And me being my neurology nerd self, I said something along the lines that people chase that high and the brain shuts down slightly. So you're not fully aware of the decisions you're making when you're inebriated. And I specifically remember saying, you're not always present in the pain you're experiencing. And he stopped me and he said, whoa, whoa, whoa. And although I didn't really know what I was saying at the time, I also didn't know how powerful that saying is because you're not always present in the pain you're experiencing, especially when you're under the influence. So today I wanted to talk about how partying and substances affect our body because I feel it's a common thing that many people have experienced before and it's very relevant. Although you can look up what are the effects of certain drug or what are the effects of alcohol, I think there's a lot more than just weighing the pros and cons of drinking. The culture of partying has become very toxic in this day and age and lots of people try and show off and drink early in their lives which is so horrible for you but it's a real thing especially I've noticed in Europe where the drinking age is lower than the United States for example. When there's a lack of parental supervision especially if um, a child grows up constantly surrounded by alcohol or even if there's peer pressure outside of the household it's likely that that person will grow up to consume alcohol or even in the same way in some sort of form of drugs. Also, when college parties and even high school parties have this big stigma of frats and pre-gaming and we tend to forget what is collectively being put into the body in a social setting. I'm never going to say to someone, hey, do you know what this is doing to your brain? Like, no, but I do want to educate those who don't know about it because it is genuinely fascinating in a world I know very little about, and I'm assuming people don't know as much as they think they do. And it's important to understand how alcohol affects the brain. Oh, quick 
quick pause. I just want to say I'm recording on my new equipment. Finally, it all came in the other day. You guys can see my funny unboxing video online, um, but I hope the audio quality is a little bit better for you guys. So, just for a little structure today, I'm going to start off with the effects of alcohol on the brain because I feel it's more common to see than alcohol. To see alcohol than any other substances, even at like a professional setting, business parties or weddings, alcohol is usually there. So I think it's the more relevant topic to associate with partying. I'll go into depths of the neurological effects, as well as the phenomenons of blacking out and hanging over. Then I'll try to humanize the process of partying by using psychology to explain some of the most common causes in which people tend to turn to partying. I won't be going into the drug aspect um, and how that affects the brain. I'll save that for another video. But if you guys have any requests on an episode, feel free to reach out at me on any platforms, such as Instagram, TikTok. The Q&A down below in this episode, just look for a handle, don't ghost your brain on any platform. You're sure to find me, but for now, let's get into this episode. So, to understand why people enjoy partying and consume substances, we need to look at the neuroscience behind it. If you've ever listened to the Huberman Lab podcast, I've recommended him before and I will recommend him again. He is extremely knowledgeable in the field of neuroscience and he actually did a similar episode where he explained what alcohol does to your body, brain, and health. And he explained the neuroscience really well. So essentially due to the structure of alcohol, it is both water soluble and fat soluble. And what this means for you is that when you drink alcohol, it can pass through all cells and tissues. And one of the reasons why that's so dangerous is because alcohol has its own direct effect on cells because it can just pass through anything. Meanwhile, things like other drugs can attach to the surface um, at the receptors of the cell, which in neuroscience we like to call it like the parking spaces. So the fact that it can pass through whatever it wants explains why alcohol has such damaging effects. When alcohol enters the body, it affects various different brain regions, such as the prefrontal cortex, and this part of the brain is responsible for decision-making, impulse control, and rational thinking. And under the influence of alcohol, the prefrontal cortex activity decreases, leading to impaired judgment and an increased likelihood of engaging in risky behaviors. I'll also touch on this a little bit more later because the prefrontal cortex is extremely important and can shut down depending on the amount of alcohol that you have. Another important thing to consider is that there are three different types of alcohols in the world, isopropyl, methyl, and ethyl alcohol. And yet humans can only consume ethyl alcohol biologically, also known as ethanol. However, even though ethanol is the only one fit to be consumed by humans, I have to mention it is toxic. It is a neurotoxin. I would love to tell you otherwise, but unfortunately, that is a fact. So I want to mention that because when alcohol enters the body, unfortunately, um, the liver has to convert it to something else because it is toxic to our organs and the body as a whole. So if you've ever taken AP Bio or AP Chem, in any high school whatsoever, you'll know that a NAD is a molecule inside of us, and it is a molecule that is involved with the conversion of ethanol to acetaldehyde. 
And what's interesting to me is that if you thought ethanol was poisonous, acetaldehyde is much worse and is literal toxic poison to our bodies. It kills our cells. And even though it's indiscriminate of what our cells being killed, what cells it is killing, so it's very clever, nevertheless, it still kills some of our cells. And so the body tries to fix this problem by converting acetaldehyde into something that we call acetate, which is finally something that isn't poisonous to our bodies and we can actually use it as fuel. However, depending on how fast your body is converting acetaldehyde into acetate, there can be more or less damage done in your system. If your body can't convert it fast enough, then there will be a buildup for acetaldehyde and it'll eventually kill more cells in the liver, which is especially harmful in the long-term sense. So this is all being done in the liver, and the reason it is done here is because the liver is very good at this conversion and can convert acetaldehyde into acetate very efficiently. But that doesn't exclude the fact that there are cells um, that are exposed to acetaldehyde, and that is why the liver is usually the most affected when someone has drank a lot of alcohol over a long period of time. So then our body transport both some percentage of poison and some percentage of energy but the most important thing is that the poison or the amount of acetaldehyde in your body is what is leading us to feel inebriated or drunk and i don't think that most people realize this because when you are inebriated you are experiencing symptoms of poison induced disruption in the neural circuits most people think oh i'll drink a beer and this liquid Maybe I'll have two or three. Yeah, I'll get a little tipsy. The alcohol is going to do a little bit. But that's actually not true. It's not the alcohol that is giving you the symptoms you are experiencing. I thought that this was really interesting. It's that you are genuinely experiencing poison-induced disruption. So to sum it all up, when you ingest alcohol, you are putting a poison into your body and then it converts it to an even more poisonous substance so that lastly your body can convert it into a form of empty calories. And the reason I say empty is because even though your body generates a lot of ATP in this process or energy, from that process it is also metabolically taxing. Plus it doesn't have any sort of nutritional value. I mean, you could use it for immediate energy, but you can't store it or use it in any sort of meaningful way. It doesn't have any vitamins or protein or anything. It's just mainly empty calories. And although it has a lot of sugar and sugar is also considered an empty calorie source, you might as well just stick a spoon of sugar in your mouth rather than drink a glass of wine. Because for you to go through all those processes to get the same amount of empty calories, there's actually much more it's much better to just have sugar rather than drink alcohol, which I thought was pretty interesting. So another thing about drinking that I find fascinating is how some people feel really confident or really social when they're a little tipsy. And again, there are different levels. You could be a little tipsy. You could definitely be drunk. You could be blacked out. We'll talk about that later. But I want to mention The Naked Mind by Annie Grace, and it is an incredible resource at explaining this in this chapter she touches on specifically she talks about how we as society are taught to drink to loosen up and that how that's harmful to us and how that's not really safe for us and i think it's quite common for people to believe that they're 
the better version of themselves when are the more fun version of themselves when they are drunk. So their their justification for drinking when they are partying is that, oh, I'm gonna be more social. And I hear this all the time where people say, Oh, I need to be a little drunk to enjoy a party like this. Oh, I can't party as well when I'm sober. And I never really understood what that meant. And first of all, I've I've never been drunk, I wanna get that clear, but that's not really what it was about. It was more people seem to put their drunk selves on this pedestal and in the strangest way possible, almost idealized and wished that they were that version of themselves sober. So Grace continues to talk about shyness and inhibitions are not negative, yet we've been conditioned to think they are. These emotions protect us, helping us to navigate through life and grace. And a great analogy I saw online was about kids having fun, whether you have little kids or you have younger siblings or if you've ever been in the presence of a child, essentially, without a doubt, they'll look back at you once in a while if you're at a park or sitting in a bench. They're going to look back at you once in a while to see if you're still there. And this is how kids have fun because the nervous system needs to feel safe, to feel relaxed and comfortable. And by seeing you, they know that they are safe in the presence of you. So alcohol tricks your brain into feeling relaxed and numbs us to that requirement of safety to have fun. That poison I was talking about earlier is what makes us unaware of the need to feel safe at all. And it blocks out all of that out of our brains, which is why it's so dangerous for us in the decision making process. Even in day-to-day life, think about it, your brain prioritizes safety in order to keep your body alive. That's just how it was functioned and that's how it's kept humans evolving over time. For example, you look both ways before you cross the road. You put on your seatbelt, you hold the railing when you walk down the stairs, and there are a million other examples. So Grace continues to say that it might not be a lot of fun to be shy, but it's normal. When our talkative nature stems from drinking, it's neither thoughtful or eloquent. Our brains function at a slower pace and we have fewer filters between our thoughts and our mouths. But we have the societal bias towards extroverts because we're ashamed of our natural inhibitions. But a more effective approach is to accept ourselves, realizing that everyone is in the same boat and to allow conversations to unfold naturally. And I think what she's trying to say is that if you give yourself a chance to believe that you are social and that you are fun without the aid of alcohol, even though we've already established it's not an aid, you might be surprised at where conversations may go, how the party feels, and even how you feel about yourself. But going back to how alcohol changes decision making and judgment while being inebriated and what part of the brain that affects... I want to bring out Quit Like a Woman by Holly Whittaker, and it's also an amazing book for providing explanations for this, and essentially she says, memory, motor function, inhibition, personality, and emotional volatility. Virtually nothing is untouched by alcohol, and it assaults our brain in on every level. Again, this problem is not isolated to heavy drinking. One drink, moderate drinking, and heavy drinking all negatively impact our most precious organ, our brains. And to give a little background again on what, where the acetaldehyde is especially hurting us, 
we need to understand the brain. So she goes on to say that humans have what's called a triune brain or a three-part brain. So the midbrain or the reptilian part is the oldest part of our brain and that's where our survival instinct lives. And then we have the limbic or the mammalian brain and that's where our emotions live. And then finally we have the neocortex, which is our thinking brain. Adult humans with a fully developed neocortex are typically thinking from the top down to the, uh, the bottom, turning it from middle to last. Essentially, she is explaining how we're thinking through things such as our emotions and why we think before we act and then how we react out of survival instinct. Whittaker goes on to say that the neocortex, specifically the prefrontal cortex, is where judgment, personality, will power, inhibition, social skills, morality, decision-making, planning, and loads of other functions live. If the brain is a car, the survival response midbrain is a gas, and the prefrontal cortex is the brake. That's probably one of my favorite analogies in neuroscience I've ever seen. So this is just another reason why you should go check out her book. But she goes on to say that when our brain starts to drink regularly, the top-down control gets flipped and the survival instinct overrides the rational thinking brain. This is due to two different causes. First, the prefrontal cortex loses its strength and volume. It's like a muscle and the chemical component of alcohol attacks gray matter or the regions of the brain involved in sensory perception, memory, emotion, speech, decision-making, and self-control. It attacks those parts along with the consistent deferral to their survival instincts. It weakens its function. So that part of the brain that's responsible for inhibiting our actions, the willpower, making decisions, moderating social behavior, constructing a personality, upholding our ethics, planning our future, it goes offline. And at the same time, the midbrain, which only thinks about the next 15 seconds or so, it becomes more powerful. And what this means for you is that there is a constant battle of trying to make logical decisions, but your brain is starting to get used to relying on your survival instincts. And then that's what it wants to rely on, not our logical decisions. It doesn't want to rely on that judgment. So there is also another reason why some people feel more social when they're a little tipsy, because the judgment that you usually think through before what you're going to say and what you're going to do has been shut down from the poison that is being converted from alcohol. Additionally, alcohol effects on the reward pathways in the brain contribute to the allure of chasing a high, which is something we hear a lot about in drugs, but I don't think we hear enough about in alcohol. Factors such as body weight and genetics also play a role in individuals' alcohol tolerance and limerent. Different people metabolize alcohol at different rates due to variations of enzyme production and liver function. Essentially, it varies person to person. And over time, frequent alcohol consumption can lead to increased tolerance, requiring larger quantities to achieve the same effects. But I think a huge question revolving around drinking and around partying is how to hear, cure that hangover the night after or the morning after. And there are many myths out there. For instance, some people drink more in the morning to relieve that headache. And I think that just seems like the most absurd idea because you're essentially just prolonging and even making your symptoms worse. You're just adding to the amount of poison that is in your body and in your brain so that the pain is temporarily numb 
until that wears off again. So then you would just have to drink more and more. And it's this constant cycle of you just numbing the pain. Again, you're not always present in the pain you're experiencing, like I said before, and I didn't even realize how relevant that was. But so instead of curing the hangover, you're essentially just prolonging it. Um, Another one is to eat bread to soak it all up. And what I found really interesting was that while, yes, eating food can technically soak up some of the content that is in your body, some studies have shown that actually having three, all three macronutrients in the most, um, in your meal is the most effective when dealing with a hangover. So having a mix of protein, carbs, and fat in your hangover meal can help reduce the symptoms of hangover, but it's also important to note that this phenomenon of hangovers are multifaceted and because there's so much being affected in so many different parts of the body, you have to be individually treating each symptom. Obviously, the best treatment is not to drink at all, but I just wanted to touch on that phenomenon briefly. And then another phenomenon I wanted to talk about was blacking out. I feel like a lot of partying when you wake up the morning of and you might have gone out with your friends or something you wake up and your friend is like oh how how are you feeling like are you okay after last night and then you're like oh like what happened last night and then they're like what you don't remember what happened last night so I feel like it's a very common experience for some people especially if um your friend group or even just your family drinks a lot that's just something very common and it's called blacking out. So to comprehend why blackouts occur, it's crucial to have a basic understanding of how memories are formed and stored in the brain. So memory formation involves intricate interplay between various brain regions, particularly in the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex. Again, the prefrontal cortex um, is one of the most effective areas when you drink, so that's why it's coming up a lot, just so you know. So the hippocampus is responsible for encoding and consolidating new memories while the prefrontal cortex plays a vital role in retrieving and recalling stored memories. So alcohol exerts its effects on the brain by interacting with neurotransmitters, specifically GABA, it's called, which is gamma, um, I can never pronounce this, aminobutric acid and glutamate. So GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter that slows down brain activity, leading to relaxation and sedation. However, on the other hand, Glutamate um, is an excitatory neurotransmitter and it facilitates communication between neurons, promoting alertness and cognition. So when alcohol is consumed in excessive amounts, it enhances GABA's inhibitory effects while suppressing glutamate's excitatory actions. And as a result, the brain experiences a decrease in overall neural activity impairing cognitive processes such as attention, judgment, and memory formation. We've kind of seen this before, right? Just in like talking about what happens during alcohol consumption. So the degree of memory impairment depends on various factors, including the blood alcohol concentration, the rate of alcohol consumption, and the individual differences in tolerance. But blackouts can be categorized in two types. So there's two types of blackouts. N-block and fragmentary blackouts. N-block blackouts involve a complete loss of memory for a specific period where individuals are unable to recall any events that occurred during that time. 
Fragmentary blackouts are also known as brownouts or partial blackouts involve patchy memory loss with individuals retaining fragmented memories of certain events but lacking cohesive recollection of the entire episode. So the role of BCA in rapid conception is the primary factor contributing to blackouts is the rapid rise in blood alcohol concentration. When individuals consume alcohol rapidly, such as during binge drinking, their BAC increases rapidly as well. Higher BAC levels have a more profound impact on memory formation, making it more likely for individuals to experience blackout. Also, I this is a legal thing. I'm not going to get into this very much. But again, looking at it from the science perspective, rapid consumption hampers the brain's ability to encode memories effectively. The hippocampus responsible for consolidating memories becomes overwhelmed by the flood of alcohol-induced neural suppression, inhibiting its capacity to form stable memories. Consequentially, the events during this period fail to transfer from short-term memory to long-term memory stage resulting in memory gaps during subsequent recall. So, alcohol-induced disruptions in memory retrieval. Apart from impairing memory formation, alcohol can also disrupt memory retrieval processes. The prefrontal cortex, critical for memory recall, is particularly vulnerable to the effects of alcohol. As alcohol suppresses glutamate, the neurotransmitter crucial for synaptic communication, the retrieval of stored memories becomes compromised. So furthermore, the alcohol's impact on the prefrontal cortex impairs exitive functions such as attention, concentration, and decision-making. And these deficits can interfere with the individual's ability to encode and consolidate memories effectively during alcohol-induced events, further contributing to the occurrence of blackouts. So it's also essential to acknowledge that not everyone experiences blackouts to the same extent, even under similar alcohol consumption conditions. Various factors can influence an individual's vulnerability to blackouts, genetic predispositions, variations in alcohol metabolism, overall tolerance, and coexisting substance use can all contribute to an individual's differences in blackout susceptibility. But Nevertheless, it is very possible, and I've heard of some people getting their memory back after a few months or even a few years sometimes, but I don't know how common that is. I haven't really done the research on that, but essentially blackouts are a complex phenomenon that occur due to the effects of alcohol on the brain's memory process. Excessive alcohol consumption impairs memory formation, primarily by disrupting the hippocampus's encoding and consolidation functions, and rapid consumption and elevated BAC levels further exasperate the likelihood of blackouts. Moreover, alcohol-induced suppression of glutamate and impaired prefrontal cortex function impede memory retrieval, hindering individuals from recalling events during periods of intoxication. So understanding the neuroscience behind blackouts provides valuable insights into the risks associated with excessive alcohol consumption and partying. And by raising awareness about the potential consequences of blackouts, we can promote responsible drinking habits, prioritize safety, and minimize negative outcomes with alcohol-induced memory impairments because no one wants to wake up from a night out and not remember what happened. 
Now remember what they say, find out from a text that you always see people like planning their drunk texts. That's another thing um, that happens during parties. There's just a lot of things that go on and you're, again, your judgment is just not the same when you're drunk and when you're sober, so. All right, so moving beyond the neuroscience, we need to understand the psychological aspects of substance use. So in psychology, there are cases of individuals who turn to substances for various reasons. Some may use substances as a coping mechanism for stress, trauma, or underlying mental health conditions. Some people struggle with familial connections or just do not have a home, whether that's a physical place or a physical people. Some people do not have that, and it's called drinking your troubles away. That's another thing where you want to forget. So in that way, your brain is naturally forgetting you. You aren't remember everything. It's a coping mechanism. And that's the most common thing I find. (laughs) A very stereotypical one that I can think of off the top of my head is the first born boy in a rich family. There's a lot of pressure. He has to take over the um, family business. There's a lot of just eyes on him from the world from his family and as a coping mechanism um to feel something different he might drink so there's a lot it's usually a coping mechanism for stress and trauma and even mental health conditions some people with bipolar disorder also i know that that's a common one so understanding these cases can shed light obviously like i said earlier everyone has their own battles no one comes without problems in their life and i think that alcohol has been a way for many people and many people see this as a way to forget your troubles so that is why partying is a fun not a fun but like a more beat way of drinking your troubles away you'll go out with your friends and even though you're exhausted that alcohol will give you a little burst of energy in the beginning that little high and then it'll go down there from there and you'll just keep on chasing that throughout the night but at least you'll get a little bit so you'll have that energy you'll have that like we said the acetate that energy to at least keep you going and then the music and it's just it's a different experience. It's an out-of-body experience because you are not fully present there. And some people don't want to be fully present where they are in life now. So that's kind of my understanding and how I want to show that we can we can sit here all we want and say, yeah, drinking's bad for you. Don't drink. Um, it's just don't like get rid of it from your household but you know when when it comes the end of the week and it's just been a stressful week a lot of people it's relaxing and it's become a routine to drink that glass of wine before you go to bed or it's just it's just a coping mechanism for some people and obviously other substances kind of work in the same way obviously not exactly but again that same idea the coping mechanism but Some people don't, I think 
what I'm trying to say is that my friend seemed like he didn't know why people knowing the effects of drinking, knowing that they're probably going to black out, that they're probably going to have a hangover, why would they still consume it? And some people don't. They'd rather have that than feel what they are feeling inside. And they don't know how to deal with their own emotions. So instead, they drink their problems away. So, (laughs) we're getting really deep. But I think that's kind of my take on why someone would indulge in alcohol. Someone would indulge in drinking in that environment because it's easier than reality in some people's lives. So... All right, so I think we've definitely tried to at least scratch the surface of why some people might drink and party and indulge in that and just trying to humanize that a little bit more. But I want to shift the focus to um, how to stay abstinent at parties while still having fun. If this is if this is maybe your environment, maybe you're in college, maybe you are at a social event or at a wedding at your best friend and you still want to enjoy but you don't want to look like someone who's going to be like oh no like like put away the alcohol you know like just someone you just don't want to stand out but you want to enjoy yourself um one method that the I had a babysitter growing up when my mom and dad would work and his or her wife her husband, oh my god, her husband would always say to me that when he went to high school parties, he would, in the red cup, you know, he would have Sprite, and he would put a little lime in it, and um, by the time that people came around, you know, they're a little, little tipsy, and they'd be like, yo, what's in your drink, and he'd be like, try it, and then they would try it and be like, yo, that's so good, and then, you know, they would usually just walk off. And I'll never forget when he tells me that. He told me that a few times. But um, that, when I'm going to be surrounded by that, I'm 100% going to use that trick. Because when I love Sprite, I mean, that's a whole nother thing. Sugar is definitely another episode coming out. But I think that this is such a better alternative to just putting yourself through the effects of being drunk. Another thing is if there are no red cups, it's probably like a social event or something you can have. Like if it's champagne in a glass, that's what I'm thinking, you know, rooftop, it's with your business. Um, You could probably just hold a glass of champagne and just interact with people. You don't have to drink it, but um, that's something. Or you just honestly, you could be confident in your decision. Someone wants to ask you about it, just say... I'm not drinking. I'm fine, you know. So I think that it's much easier to stay abstinent than people think. Again, there are certain things. There are withdrawals from alcohol use disorder. That's another whole thing. Again, if you guys want an episode, let me know. But I think that as long as in a more moderate sense, it is easier. Don't cut it cold turkey right away. That is also really bad for your body. Um, Obviously, to get off of it is fine, but just kind of if you are somewhere near the chronic drinker um, and you don't even realize it, just kind of 
slowly stepping back is much safer than just cutting it cold turkey. But I think that while you're there in the moment and you're enjoying yourself, just we just know that we have this limited time on earth. And if you want to make it last longer, alcohol is definitely not going to do that for you. So I hope you enjoyed today's exploration into the topic of why people consistently party and ingest substances. Remember, the goal here is not to judge or shame, but to gain a deeper understanding of the factors at play. If you're interested in learning more, um, I encourage you to go listen to Andrew Huberman, um, read the book Quit Like a Woman, and um... all right, so we've definitely explored how the brain has been affected and the psychological effects of drinking and then blacking out and hanging over phenomenons and then the humanization and psychology of reasonings why people drink. So as usual, I try and provide, you know, helpful tips and just the how to stay, how to stay living your best life. Um, so in relation to abstinence in a party setting, let's say, so I had a babysitter growing up and her husband would always say to me that when he had high school parties or wherever he went, um, she would always tell me, or he would always tell me that when he went out, he had, you know, a red cup or I'm, I'm thinking high school parties, the house parties, right? So he had a red cup and then he would put Sprite in it and then a little lime so, you know, it wouldn't exactly taste exactly like Sprite, but something of the mix, you know, and people would come around and usually they'd be drunk, you know, by the time that he was there and they'd be like, yo, what's in your drink? And then he would let them have a taste and it would be Sprite with lime, but they would be so drunk that they wouldn't even know. And they'd be like, yo, that's so good, you know? And so eventually they'd walk away, but so... <laughs> That was something that always stuck with me. I think that when I'm going to be surrounded in that setting, I will definitely have a Sprite with lime because I love Sprite and I'd rather be, like I said earlier, I'd rather be consuming sugar than alcohol. So that's another episode that's definitely coming soon about how sugar affects the body and the pros and cons of sugar. I'm not sure how many pros there are, but we'll definitely get into that another time. Um, another thing is... If, Another scenario, imagine like a rooftop party with like your business associates and there's important people there and everyone's being social and everyone's drinking champagne and glasses, right? You could technically hold the glass of champagne and not drink it and that'd be fine. And then you could also just be confident like in any setting, you could just be confident that oh, I'm good, I don't need a drink, you know, you don't have to force that on anyone, but... You could also stay confident in your own decision in your own absence because you know what is better for your body and what is not as good as for your body. So I think that that's really important to say, just kind of given a few strategies on how to stay absent, either just make up your own concoction that's not super recognizable, but something that you enjoy and isn't going to harm you as much as alcohol, or just, just being slick about it, just kind of just staying to yourself rather than feeling inebriated. So 
there you have it, our exploration into the topic of why people consistently party and ingest substances. Remember, like I said earlier, the goal here is not to judge or shame even to anyone else or to take this as any sort of form of judgment or shame, but I just wanted to help people gain a deeper understanding of the factors at play. If you're interested in learning more, I encourage you to check out the books Quit Like a Woman and Naked Mind um, for additional insights, and please listen to Andrew Huberman. He's amazing. Thank you for joining us today on the Don't Ghost Your Brain podcast. We hope that this podcast has helped provide valuable information and spark curiosity about the complex dynamics behind partying and substance use. As always, thank you for listening and see you next week.